sexual assault, sexual violence, gendered violence is a form of oppression. And so whenever you look at the rates of sexual violence, according to communities and identities, you always see that the least valued people in the society are raped the most. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. My guest today is Wagatwe Wanjuki. She's an activist, a campus anti-violence advocate, and she's on the forefront of the fight to end rape culture. Wagatwe's personal story is really heartbreaking. She was raped at university, and instead of punishing her rapist, the university expelled her. That was an act that upended her life. But out of that experience was born a fierce activist against rape culture. So here's the compelling thing about Wagatwe's story. It's the way she talks about her experience. She came into the spotlight after introducing the phrase survivor privilege. You know, and that phrase is intended to be a response to people who think that those who speak out about being survivors, they're doing so for attention or for accolades or for fame. Wagatwe talks about all the nuanced and pragmatic ways one's life is impacted far beyond the initial act of sexual violence. She talks about the true cost of not believing victims. I really, really felt a connection to Wagatwe. Her story, it paralleled my own experience with sexual harassment in college, which I've actually never talked about before. This is the first time that I've actually talked about it openly. You know, and that's why she does what she does, to show other survivors that they're not alone and that it's okay and it's safe to speak out. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Wagatwe Wanjuki. Wagatwe Wanjuki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I became familiar with your work because someone forwarded your TED Talk to me. And and I was really blown away by the talk because you, you talk about an experience you had in a really nuanced way, right? And the title of the talk is The Literal Cost of Not Believing Survivors. So you were raped in college and you were kicked out, essentially. Yes. And, and so the TED Talk was about the pragmatic, practical cost of that experience from beginning to end, right? And it really struck me because I think that when people talk about sexual violence and they talk about rape, they talk about it in this really flat, simplistic way, right? There's the act, the rape, and then there's the survivor if the survivor gets through, and then that's kind of it. But no one thinks about all of the dimensions of a person's life that the rape affects. So often when something traumatic like this happens, um, we don't often make the connection of that trauma and how it affects other areas of our lives. Exactly. And I was just curious, is that did you immediately make that connection in your own life? Or did you at some point blame yourself? Oh, God. Oh, I did not make that connection right away. So um, I did blame myself for a long time. I would say um, it, I think there's the normal feelings of um, self-blame that happens when one is victimized just because we unfortunately live in a country or a society really because this is an international problem where we blame we are you know we inherently victim blame and and that victim blaming is not even just present when we talk about sexual violence or or domestic violence right like i feel like especially in america is very much written into our norms and our culture and just like how we talk about things so even just like poverty um, you know, healthcare. And so thinking about those things over time, I started to put these pieces together. So um, I 
really, uh, I'm a nerd, I guess I should say, right? So like when I got kicked out of school, I missed school because like school was my life. I love learning. I love research. I love doing things. And so after a while, I actually started doing research to try and make more sense of my situation. So when I reported to the school, I thought it wasn't, I thought they weren't going to do what they ended up doing, right? Like I thought they were going to do the right thing just because it's just ethically, I was like, oh yeah, common sense. A student says they were raped. You're going to want to support them and help them. Because like, not only is it like a legal requirement, but it just seems like automatically that's what you do naturally. Especially thinking about, I, I did choose my school. I chose Tufts specifically because they positioned themselves as a school who really cared about the world and activism and like would support people in civic engagement. So like I also specifically chose this community because I thought that they would have similar values. But, you know, they ended up not doing anything. My assailant ended up graduating on time um, when I started speaking up. Um, they, yeah, they expelled me and it was devastating and it just didn't make any sense to me. It's like, why are you further punishing me? Haven't I been hurt enough? Especially just considering how things, you know, continued very well for my assailant, right? Like, like his life wasn't derailed or any of these sort of things, but mine was. And so I started, uh, I like just discovered feminist Twitter and, you know, I loved blogging already. And I found the feminist blogosphere, especially the like anti-rape blogosphere. Um, and I started just like consuming it. And I, um, I also ended up turning to academic articles because I found what was on Google wasn't enough. I think back then people really weren't talking about sexual assault the same way, not as much and not with so many stories and so many nuances. And so I found comfort in reading, you know, things for clinicians, even like trauma and recovery by Judith Herman and academic journals. So like, you know, firing up that Google scholar and <laughs> just like typing in things and trying to make sense of this. And so I found a theory about how, Sexual assault, sexual violence, gendered violence is a form of oppression. And it kind of blew my mind. Cause, like, yeah, like, why? Like, cause, you know, rape is used as a tool of war. Right. And, you know, like, it's used as a punishment. People send rape threats because they know it's actually like an awful thing. And so, as I dove deeper into that, the you know, how it is oppression, right? Is that it, it, it works, it's used, is used as a tool to, have individuals affirm their power in society and keep like secondary people in their place, so to speak. And so whenever you look at the rates of sexual violence, according to communities and identities, you always see that the least valued people in the society are raped the most. And so how does that happen? So just knowing with my situation, um, you know, I was expelled and I had tons of student loans. I was expelled at the height of the Great Recession. So no one's hiring a black girl without a college degree, um, you know, when all these people are out there. And because my, my lender was private and I didn't know there was a difference between private and like federal loans, they just defaulted on me. So like 
I forgot how much money. Um, I feel like I've calculated a few too many times, but I always try to forget it because it's so much. But like, it, it could be at, at least eighty thousand, maybe a hundred thousand dollars of debt to attend a school that didn't care that I was raped, and then they expelled me, and I didn't even get the degree. So, um, and just seeing how that reverberated in my life, like socially, you know, with my self esteem, with my credit score, and how our credit score really does dictate so many things in our lives. My dad was a co-signer and on my loans and like that also impacted him and that can limit jobs. I know, you know, it, it could have been a problem. You know, it was something that was flagged when he's applied for jobs before. So thinking about how our world is just so inherently hostile to survivors in a way, like not even necessarily in a conscious way very often, but there's just all these different barriers where we really don't talk about what happens long after someone's sexual assault. Part of the reason why I talk about it is because like I would always read people's stories. Oh, look, like they were assaulted. And then, you know, this thing happened and then that's it. And it's like, wait, but what happened to their life? And then you'd only hear about it maybe from celebrities after they've really recovered or, you know, they're very further down their path and they're these exceptional people. And I just wanted to really hear more about like something a little bit more normal, like use my privilege to try to at least help us reframe what victimhood is and what it entails and how we keep punishing victims long after the assailant has done their job. Right. I think I really got that from my Title IX work as well, just seeing how Title IX, you know, is a is a civil rights statute because like you have a civil right to education and being sexually victimized should not, which is something that is not your fault, you know, should not interrupt your educational aspirations. Right. That clearly happened to me, right? But I think that shows how valuable it is. And it also shows just like how derailing sexual violence can be, especially in places that are so important, like school or the workplace, which I think is part of the reason why Me Too really took off. Yeah. So I actually, when I was researching this, I found a poem that you wrote uh, a couple of years ago. And um, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just read it because I think it yeah. encapsulates your whole experience so well for me. And I really had to keep it together when I was reading this oh. because it's just so powerful. Anyway, Thank it's you. titled Paying the Price of Victimhood. I've had to let go of so many dreams. Black woman, raped, ignored report, exposed school, expelled, no college degree, no one hiring, private loans call and call and call, poor credit score, no good housing, car or credit cards, cash only life, but have you tried to rent a car with debit? PTSD, ADD, anxiety rises, mood lowers, hard to talk, hard to think, hard to move, hard to focus, unemployed, loan debt climbs, life options lower, new ways out of hell, but money, Money, money is in the way. With money, it always starts with money. It always ends. All because it started with a rapist who won and ended with a university who didn't care. And that, that I just found that so powerful because, like I said earlier, you know, all of the ways that these events impact someone's life aren't very often highlighted, right? Yeah. What I really found interesting about that poem is that, you know, you start with Black women and then the, I think the second line is raped. And if you take out those two lines, the rest of that experience kind of describes a lot of the way that women of color live, 
right? A lot of the a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the tropes about, you know, black women. Ultimately you were kicked out because of your grades, right? And I was just wondering how all of those racial stereotypes and tropes played into the way that the university responded to you. Yeah. And 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 that's something I think is really hard about racism today, or at least it was back then, <laughs> like five years ago, ten years ago. Oh my God, that's yeah. a really long time ago. But um <laughs> I, I think they didn't take it as seriously. Um, as part of my research, I actually found that Black women are believed less by juries. Like, people just take it less seriously. And that actually kind of resonated with me in the sense that I knew other women victims at Tufts who ended up having... One had a really good experience, surprisingly, and another one had also an awful experience, but at least they did more. Um, They didn't kick her out. They gave her more support. And so I think my race did have something to do with it in a sense of like, they probably didn't see me as valuable. Um, They probably did see me as like, oh, this is just some another black kid struggling at a top school, even though, you know, I went to a prep school. I took the PSATs. I was among the top 10% of Black test takers that year. I got into eight of the nine schools I applied to. Like I I, I feel like I am smart <laughs> and yeah. I had proven that and I, the school had failed to do its job. Um, I also ended up looking up more things and there's, there is or was a database that I came across that looks at the retention of students by race according to school. And I actually saw that Tufts University compared to its peers during that time, and even up to the time that I was looking a few years later, was very much had a lower rate of retention, specifically for Black students. I think when you have an administration that is not culturally competent, you know, I was a scholarship student, Black woman, first generation American, and they just... Yeah, it was it was clear that there was this disconnect and they didn't even really understand. I I even remember one moment when I told them, you know, about how much school, you know, I really wanted to go back to school because they put me on academic leave. Um, and I was like, I really want to go back, like being ostracized and being, you know, having this taken away from me is just like exacerbating things. And also when I'm not a student, this was before Obamacare, I was like, I won't have access to health care, my dad's health care insurance for me to even like get the therapy and care that I would need. Um, and they were like, well, you can just go to like urgent care. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or just go to the emergency room, yeah. right? Like, uh, uh. Like, oh my gosh, like these folks just like, you know, and, and, and yeah, when you have a bunch of white people who are making, you know, five, six figures a year controlling a school full of other rich kids, I think, I think race can definitely feel like it played a huge part in that aspect. And for me personally, I would say the the racial aspect was not even just about me, but also my assailant, because this was not an interracial rape. This was intraracial. Right. And, you know, I think there was also that struggle of like, do I say anything? Do I do this? But I also think because of the complexity of my story that, you know, we were in a relationship also made it seem like, oh, she, you know, there's definitely this this feeling of them thinking I was like making this up as some form of revenge. Right, right. Yeah. 
Well, you know, there, God, there's so much to unpack there. I want to go back to the interracial thing because I think that's really important. But I also want to point out that I also looked up Tufts numbers and <laughs> and it's like 4% African-American from the last data that was gathered for undergraduates. So the fact that they don't have a great retention rate for African-Americans is, you know, not good. In the end, you know, they may have a 4% admission rate in the beginning. But, you know, once all those students are filtered out, what does the campus culture actually look like? Yeah. Right. That's first of all. And second of all, I think the excuse that they used to kick you out was really interesting because, you know, you know, all of the undertones of race, it's not very hard for someone to make a leap. Despite all of your evidence, you've done really well in high school and you've done really well academically before then. It's really easy for someone to throw that evidence out mm-hmm. when you're talking about a black woman. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's just another black student struggling at a top university. Of course, right. you know, <laughs> so it's not really hard for them to make that case versus looking at the evidence. Exactly. Yeah, so, but back to the interracial thing, because I think that's really important. And we'd actually talked about this offline. And we talked about how this relates to my own experience in college. So my story was actually a case of sexual harassment at the hands of my professor in college, who also happened to be black. And I wasn't believed by my college either, right? So, you know, in that way, it's very similar to your story. And you know, when I think back on it, I I can't help but be reminded of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, right? When he was up for the Supreme Court seat, they were both black, it was a sexual harassment case. And, you know, both their futures were going to be decided by a group of people who were mostly not people of color. And I just remember there was this one pivotal moment where he said, you know, this is nothing but a high tech lynching of an uppity black person. And I remember that so clearly because I remember thinking that, you know, that moment was really pivotal for his confirmation because no one wanted to be a part of a high tech lynching. Right. So in my case, the university was really proud of hiring a a black professor and it was a, you know, like a feather in their diversity cap. So when it came time for them to make a choice over who would be thrown under the bus, you know, it was, of course, going to be me because no one wanted to take part in bringing down a black professor. So anyhow, I want to thank you again for helping me open up about that part of my life. That's, I mean, I, I'm honored that I've been able to help you because I, I, I remember looking just like about stories and like no one looked like me, you know, and anytime I try to find anyone who seems even vaguely like me, they were always black men showed as assailants. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was like, I wanted to show that like, this is harming us, right? Like this harms black women when society refuses to see us as victims ever. And so I wrote the foreword to a book. It, it focuses on survivors, uh, minoritized survivors on college campuses and like their unique needs. And there's an article that talks about how black women are not seen or taken seriously and that they hesitate to even report anything partially because they hear you know such horrible stories but also because whenever we do talk about abuse among black folks it has this extra layer of weight right that probably administrators are not even thinking of right especially if white people are involved in a predominantly white institution thinking of just about those dynamics, like, are they aware of it? Are they handling that? Because that does play a part. Like, what can schools do to, um, not even just schools, just like communities, like, what can we do to 
encourage everyone, every type of victim to be able to say that it happened to them. That's what we need. That's the only way that we're really going to have a safer world. I'm curious about what life was like in that time after you made the report and, you know, before you actually left the relationship between other peers and faculty, right? Because I would imagine, were you, were you isolated? And what was that relationship like? Oh God. Yeah, I was very isolated. Um, When I reported, I actually reported when I was living in the area, but not enrolled at the school because they had me on force to leave. And so I was still around there and I was like, you know, I'll still go through the process because my assailant was still enrolled. But because I think of the isolating nature of abuse already, I was already pretty isolated. But then, you know, being forced on academic leave, that was also isolating. And then, yeah, it was bad. It it didn't feel good because at first I think I was a little bit, I was excited at first because I thought I finally was going to get my day in court. Um, at school and like at least be able to say publicly to my assailant what he had done to me wasn't okay and other people agree but unfortunately essentially Tufts decided that like they agreed with him and that like what happened to me didn't matter which I think is is um the hardest thing to to deal with especially I think back then for me when you know, I I think I wasn't as I didn't have as much self esteem. And I wasn't as sure in myself. Because of course, I was in an abusive relationship, and I had been victimized and abused. So yeah, it was it was a really tough time. And I think that can't be expressed enough. Because I think that part was really difficult. One of the things that Dr. Judith Herman says in Trauma and Recovery is that, you know, one of the most important steps for recovery for a survivor is to have the community acknowledge the harm done to them. Yeah. It's such a small thing, but we don't really see that, especially in college settings. So I think about that and how common it is that we as a society just don't allow that. Right. You know, I think we talked about this offline too, that isolation and not being believed, it adds to the trauma. And I think one of the things that people don't realize, and I think that what people didn't realize in my case, and in your case too, is just how young college students are. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, they're just out of high school. Their prom dress is still warm, right? <laughs> you know, people don't realize that the, the trauma of rape is hard for a grown woman. Yeah. You know, and I thought about that in myself. I, I felt like people were treating me like I had the emotional capacity to handle more than what they were throwing at me. Right. Right. That is that 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 resonates with me so hard because I actually was just I recently did an interview for a book um, that someone's writing about like the history of Title IX activism. So apparently, like the work that I've done was kind of one of the pivotal moments or like actions of the recent wave that we had been seeing. And when I was speaking with the researcher and I, I really, I was just like, I was a kid, yeah, you know, like these were adults. And like the whole point of having administrators is to have adults who know what to do to make sure that I'm okay. So I can be a student 
and like do my job, which is to get a degree and leave and like make Tufts look good. Right. And it's funny because like, you know, back then I felt like, you know, I felt like I was pretty mature and like pretty old. And yeah, I look back, I was like, oh my gosh, I was so vulnerable. I was so young. Like they really messed up. I don't know. I just think about it now as someone who's just, you know, I'm 30 or 31. I don't even remember how old I am anymore. Um, (laughs) I was like, I don't need to count anymore. I'm over 21, whatever. Um, I mean, these are people's lives in their hands. Yeah. They made life-changing decision to, to do this to me. And so I think that's another thing I really hope we can start talking about, not just assailants, but also their enablers, the people who do that dirty work of making it even worse afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about the, the isolating nature again, because again, like we said, these students are so young And oftentimes they go from this really insular environment where they're in high school and they have high school counselors and their family and all of their friends who love them. And then possibly they go across the country or to a different state to a school and they're all alone, right? And their parents are a phone call away, but still they're not there to give them a hug or whatever. And I I was thinking about your case in comparison to mine, and I don't want to spend too much time on my case, but I was thinking about how hard it must have been for you to have been on that probation and to kind of watch everybody else's lives just kind of go by, right? I mean, you must have run into other students and probably, you know, the assailant, the person who raped you. I mean... Sorry, I don't want to. No, I mean, you're, I mean, yeah, that's, that's totally, that's totally on point. It was hard. And there was a time when I deleted my Facebook because, right, there was a time when everyone's graduating and getting into grad school and going to these programs that I wanted to go to. And it wasn't just the fact that I'd be graduating late. I couldn't even access those types of programs anymore because my grades were bad, right? Yeah. And they put me in all these leaves. I was like, my identity, my life path had to be completely changed and and it was also something that my assailant used to really put me down yes you know like your life is not going anywhere you know you mount you're nothing and like you're embarrassing and you know these sort of things where they just kind of just reinforced these awful things that you may be thinking yourself anyway but then you hear it from somebody else and also i we often don't talk about the retaliation that a lot of people face right cuz like colleges can have very tight knit communities and very often when someone's assaulted it's within a community or there's like some sort of connection and you know people can get bullied and harassed by friends and stuff like that and that can also be really isolating um the, you know people ostracize victims way more quickly than they will assailants, which is a sad fact about our world. So it was really hard. I've never been to a graduation since my high school graduation. And when I got expelled, at first I wanted to go back to Tufts. I had a meeting with them and they're like, how about this? You go to therapy and like you can get a therapist's letter saying that they think you're ready to go back to school and then maybe we'll consider letting you back in. And I was like, all right, I'm done. Like you guys screwed me over. Like, you know, I was just like, I was like, no, I don't want a degree from a university that does that. You're totally okay with rapists having degrees in your name, but like someone like me, who I think, you know, has done a few good things in the world. So I ended up getting my bachelor's eventually. I like went back to community college and I did really well. And I was like, oh, maybe I am smart. Like maybe what Tufts told me about not being smart enough to be at, this school isn't right. 
Um, so I went there and I got my degree and then I finally got my bachelor's like 10 years after I went to Tufts to start my bachelor's degree. And when I got it, I was like, you sent it to me in the mail. And I don't even know where it is now. I think it might be somewhere because like, it's just sort of like, I just don't, it lost its value. Yeah. Uh, you know what? This story just touches me so much because, you know, it just mirrors mine in so many ways. Right. And, um, and I think that's why I kind of bonded with you over the phone. We talked about it earlier, but in in my case, I was not kicked out and it was very clear that they wanted me to leave. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting how people bond together to protect institutions and to protect rapists, you know, or victimizers, but not the, the victim, right? And, you know, again, you know, I was, you know, isolated. And like I said, they tried to make things so difficult for me because they couldn't kick me out. They didn't have any reason to kick me out. They weren't clever enough to think of the grades thing. <laughs> I think my, and I think my yeah. grades were fine, <laughs> you know, um, surprisingly, because yeah. I had a really tough time, you know, going to classes and, and concentrating. But I just, I was just determined that they weren't going to win. And I was going to, if I had to cry through my classes, I was going to finish. <laughs> And another interesting thing about not wanting to go back, and and I think that that's PTSD, actually. But despite the isolation from peers and from other professors, I did have one professor that was, and I can't even remember his name, I can't believe I can't remember his name, that helped me and he helped me do independent studies so that I could keep my grades up. And then following that, he used the work that I did in independent study to help me get a full scholarship to get my master's and my doctorate. So a full ride for graduate school. So listen to this. So the experience was so traumatic for me that I threw it away. I was like, I, when I'm done, I'm not staying here. And people should understand the value, right. (laughs) That I threw away in relation to how traumatic sexual violence and sexual harassment is for a young person to throw away hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. That means a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that like breaks my heart because it makes me think about just how many careers and lives have been derailed because people refuse to just do something as simple as listening to survivors. <laughs> I read about how Arizona State University, there was this hearing, this guy was found. They found that he did sexually assault a student. But then they were like, we don't want to expel him because he does such great things with like academics and like he's a great <laughs> contributor to community and like you know they always talk about how valuable assailants are but they never talk about what do we lose by having these victims have to change everything and live amongst them maybe cancer could have been cured by now right you know instead of saying like what if you aborted someone cure cancer i always like to say like what if the person who could have cured cancer was raped and wasn't supported what are we losing as a society? What greatness have we missed out on? Because academia also needs diversity, right? Yeah. You know, our stories are not unique. Millions and millions and billions of people over time have lost out of these things. And I, I wish there was more of an uproar. Yeah. Do you burn your alumni newsletters? <laughs> well, they don't send them to me, thank goodness. Once they did send me one, um, but I think they got the memo. But um I did burn a few of my Tufts gear. Oh. Actually, if I do find them, I do end up burning them just because um, I did a campaign a couple of years ago. I, I tried to start a nonprofit organization. Then I found out people don't like to give money to black women doing anti-rape work. That's intersectional and actually effective. <laughs> um 
But <laughs> anyway, the inaugural campaign, it was called like, just say sorry. And I talked yeah. about the healing properties of apologies and how it is really helpful, not even just for survivors, but it also sends a really great message to the entire community that sexual assault is not permitted. And that actually makes people safer because like, shocker, public stands against rape shows that rapists, you're not welcome here. And then they don't want to be there. So I was going to do this thing where I was like, I'm going to burn one thing from Tufts every week until they say sorry. And it was, you know, something to attract attention and like rile people up. And it did get attention. You know, I got attention in Germany, got attention. I was like Germany. on the front page. Of- <laughs> yeah, Germany found it. It like covered it. We got, you know, front page of I think it was like the Boston Globe online. It was bananas and it was really cool. Um, but it was really triggering, actually. For you. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up stopping. (laughs) And I feel like I never even like officially did a statement of why I stopped. Part of it was just I ran out of money to try and do this organization. But also part of it was just like there was still a lot of emotion there, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. But I really loved your essay about being a survivor in the public eye. And I didn't know this, but you made an appearance at the Oscars and you met Lady Gaga. Yes. And I think what was really interesting about your essay, you talk about the assumptions that people make based on your proximity to famous and wealthy people. Yes. <laughs> right? So, I mean, what was that like? What What did people assume and how was that experience? Oh, no. um, I mean, people would always assume I have money, which I wish I did. <laughs> And then also, I guess people just assume, like, I'll be okay, or like someone else is taking care of me, and it'll be fine. I think something's really interesting. I think we're also in this really interesting new age where we have this different type of fame, and we don't really know what it's gonna look like, like in retrospect. So we're still kind of figuring it out where, you know, we have people who become famous from like Twitter, basically, right? Yeah, I got international news coverage because of the internet, right? Like did a Facebook Live video of me burning this stuff. (laughs) And so, you know, I think there's this weird in between these days. There is this thing where I think when you're closer to famous people or like people who probably do have money, there's this assumption of connection or familiarity, maybe, where it's just easy to kind of go down that spiral. And I think that's also partially why I try to be very open about the financial impact of what happened to me and that no one is... I don't know, like, I just don't want to make it seem like, you know, people are getting raped so they can like, this is not this glamorous thing. Like, I'm still there only because I was raped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's, you know, like, yeah, Lady Gaga, but I had to be raped to be there. So I'd rather have not met Lady Gaga. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I would trade, I would trade that as well. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, insane. So here's what I've come to learn, I guess, you know, as I've matured about people and about, you know, human nature and about life is that, first of all, I never trust anyone who works really hard to discredit someone, right? Especially in a case where there's some accusation around, you know, sexual assault or sexual harassment. You know, I think that when a group or an institution or a, a university in our case, yeah. when they work really hard to silence someone, you know, I'm immediately suspicious. Also, you know, I've never understood the point of telling a victim to their face that you think they're lying. 
I mean, there's really nothing to gain from doing that. And it just seems like gaslighting to me. And it feels like it's meant to to make the victims question themselves so much so that they that they stop speaking out, right? And I'm just curious, did you feel like that in your case? Did you feel that they actually did believe you, but they were telling you otherwise, right? And hopes to silence you. Hmm. I I think I think at least in the beginning, I don't think they really believe me that yeah. much. I think once I started bringing up more of the legal stuff, I think they believe that they did mess up legally. And I think that's why they ended up being a lot more cautious about talking about me. So they basically pretend I don't exist now. Because <laughs> before they're like, all right, now any reporters that are calling about Wagatway, direct them straight to legal. So yeah, I think at least in that way, maybe they believe me now, but... They didn't believe me when it counted. Right. It's crazy. Why would anyone go through this? You know, (laughs) that's the thing. And like, it didn't make sense to me because it was like, to even insinuate that this was a revenge plot. I waited to report. It took me a while. I dated them. I got back together with them. I did all these things. Why would I just make up some detailed thing from like two years ago that makes me look bad? Yeah, I just thought it didn't make any sense. A spurned lover or something. (laughs) Right. I always used to joke, you know what? That idea, honestly, if you want revenge on someone, saying that they raped you is actually the least effective and like the worst (laughs) idea. Right. Right. Yeah. So you have a podcast coming out that I'm really excited about. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. So I am co-hosting an upcoming podcast from Wondery. It's called I Survivor. And we call it the anti-true crime podcast. So instead of talking about dead women, we speak with women who have survived and we talk about like what we can learn from their experiences. So that will be coming out on July 31st. And I'm super duper excited to to share it with the world. I'm really excited too. I mean, I'm excited in as much as you can be excited about, you know, the subject, but I think it needs to be out there because, I mean, it's really interesting. I don't know if you listen to other podcasts or what genres you listen to, but the the top ones are always, what centers the top ones are women, women being, you know, killed Mm. mostly, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's been some great true crime podcasts I really like, but I had to stop listening to a lot of them because I was getting nightmares and stuff like that. So I'm excited for this angle. I'm glad that Wondery chose survivors. I'm glad that they chose me, a Black woman also, and like someone who's been really outspoken about it because I definitely know what's at stake and how important this is. And Wondery calls itself like a network of storytellers. And I like to say that like survivors are the original storytellers because we have been the people who have made the folks around us reckon with the worst parts of the society around them. And I think that's part of why we're so hated. But to be able to bring that responsibility and knowing the power of that, I'm really excited for the the possibility. Also, just a segue to say that it feels a lot different from my other podcast, Disrespectability Politics, which I think is a lot more conversational. And yes, it's like Black feminists. You know, I'm definitely bringing my politics from that into the work at iSurvivor as well. Yeah. So is this, is it a long form interview format with survivors? Is that the format of your new podcast? Well, we're still figuring that out. 
Uh, <laughs> well, we're definitely going to have immersive storytelling. You know, that's definitely a core of what Wondery is known for. So, you know, we, we do that and we have some long form interviews with survivors. We also have some with experts and we also, um, the co-host and I, we chat and sometimes we'll deconstruct a really bad list of safety tips and say why they're actually victim blaming and not helpful. So we're trying to also have some humor with it and try to empower folks and educate people in a way that's not going to give you nightmares at night. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that, I think that I know the answer to this, but do you think that after the emergence of the Me Too movement, that having a podcast like this or a show like like this is easier, yeah. right? That people will be more receptive. Oh, totally. I think that is, it's kind of, in, I think that's the only reason why people <laughs> find me now. And like, I get a lot more emails from folks about like, oh, you know, like from casting directors and stuff who are interested in different initiatives. And I just see so many more things popping up. Because I think before, it was interesting when I first started speaking about rape when I was kicked out of school, no one really was covering it that much. And no one really wanted to talk about a black girl being raped or anything sort of like that, right? So no one covered it. And I think Me Too showed there's a lot of people interested and there's a lot of storytelling that hasn't been done. So there's just this huge horizon ahead of us that I'm really excited about. And I hope more people see this opportunity. And I really hope that they do sort of, I hope they do what Wondery did. They chose survivors. They found me someone who has been talking about this for over a decade, right? Because I think one of the downsides I say of me too is that yes, more people are talking about it, but not everyone is qualified to do that. And I fear that many of the most prominent voices Voices, not talking about like the, the actresses and stuff per se. I'm thinking even just like the media coverage and like commentary and it's being led and still narrated by people who were saying it wasn't important to cover in the first place. So I think the key here is for us to be pushing for survivor-led and survivor-centered initiatives. Like I said, having this conversation with you and talking to you about my experience and listening to your experience has really been helpful for me, right? And I was just curious that, you know, right now, of course, there are thousands of college students going through the same thing that we went through, unfortunately. You know, if they're listening right now, what is it that you want that college student to know, to know about her future, to know about the experience that she's having. I want them to know that they're not alone. And not only is the law on their side, but just the right thing is on their side. And that it is possible to be great, not because of what they did to you, but in spite of that, right? Like you're still who you are, even if that didn't happen to you. And, and I think now we have so many more resources and options that people don't have to suffer alone. And so I hope people can take advantage of that, that even if the people right next to you are not supporting you, you're able to find people on this wonderful web. It can be horrible, but it's also wonderful because I think that's how I realize I'm not alone. And this is a this is a nation, you know, worldwide problem. So I hope they can take comfort in that and, and take some hope in seeing that so many people have gone on to do great things in spite of so many people doing wrong. Well, Agatwe, thank you so much for joining me. I really love this conversation. Thank you so much. It was, uh, it was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of The Electorette. Visit us at electorette.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. 
The Electrolyte is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>